millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Neffet advice on reopening described as sobering. Irish Examiner political editor Daniel McConnell will bring us the latest developments. Professor Sam McConkie will join us to explain why he feels that if people choose to live with COVID-19, then there is a certain case for getting culture and hospitality back up and running. Restaurateur Paul Trevo on why his industry has lost faith in the government's strategy and why restaurants are now in disaster territory. Our Dublin Bay South by-election debates continue with Green Party candidate Claire Byrne and People Before Profit candidate Bridget Purcell live in studio. As a new Irish Times poll puts the Fine Gael candidate James Gagan in the lead. And later, house prices continue to rise across the country. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, we're joined by the Irish Examiner's political editor, Daniel McConnell. Um, Daniel, Neffet advice is pretty stark tonight. How will this play into the Cabinet COVID committee's thinking? Yeah, it's very clear, Claire, that the government is unlikely to waver significantly from any Neffet recommendation. I mean, the Thornister was out earlier today making that pretty clear. What we understand is a 26-page letter went to government this evening from Neffet, um, setting out in very stark terms the potential impact of the Delta variant, uh, um, warning that uh, up to 2,170 deaths could be reported across the months of um, August and September. And they've also warned that that could place the reopening of schools in September in jeopardy. In relation to indoor dining, what they're making very clear is that they should be paused, that the, the planned reopening on July 5th should be paused for an indefinite period of time what they're basically saying i think your, your colleague zara king had a flavor of this earlier on this evening that you know they, they need to wait until they get a system in place that they people can show that they're fully vaccinated or are immune to infection uh, but there's no clarity and there's some anger within government this evening as to that lack of clarity um in relation to the delta variant um, so government have a big decision to make tomorrow as to what do they do but it's very clear they will go with the deferral um, but I suppose it'll be government's decision as to what length of time that deferral would take. And obviously this is a hammer blow to the hospitality sector who've essentially had to put their plans on hold for not the first or second time, but probably the fifth or sixth time now at this stage. And on the matter of vaccines, uh, Danny, Nyack have made some important recommendations, narrowing that gap for AstraZeneca to four weeks and that AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson jab can be used for the vaccination programme for 18 to 40-year-olds. How much will this influence potentially a Cabinet decision on reopening? Yeah, it would be significant, particularly longer term as uh, pressures on AstraZeneca and other vaccines uh, come into play. We know there's likely to be shortfalls or certainly squeezes on, on delivery of vaccines in the coming weeks as the, you know, as the programme has escalated. That 
clarity from Net or from Nyack is important because the Taunashi made very clear again this morning that government will be, you know, on, on that particular thing when it comes to the vaccination um, program, they will be guided solely by by Nyack's recommendations. That's a purely scientific decision, whereas the other decisions that Neffet are looking at are, are kind of more public health and kind of you know are, are more political uh, per se. But in terms of Nyack, that is a significant recommendation. Obviously, gives the options, uh, gives the government more options, gives it more wiggle room, and certainly will allow them to offset any of the potential impact of any shortfalls from some of the other vaccines that are, are that have been, I suppose, forewarned uh, in, in recent days. So it's good news. Um, and also as well, I suppose, for people who you know have been told that they might be able to mix and match their, their vaccine, now, I suppose that there's been some reluctance to, on that point up until now. Um, it just gives that government and public health officials mm. that little bit of wiggle room uh, in the days and weeks ahead. What about the political fallout from all of this? Uh, should the government go along with Neffet's advice to delay the reopening? The hospitality sector have been holding out on this July 5th date. Uh, how, how is it going to play out and, and, and how are politicians going to explain that and try and justify that decision? Without question, I mean, we, we've seen caution being the optimum word since Christmas, since that the flare-up of, of cases over Christmas and New Year. Uh, but there is a kind of a growing stock of opinion within the political system that, you know, we're in a different phase of the pandemic. Our hospitalizations are very low. ICU numbers are very low. Uh, we are an outlier in terms of Europe when it comes to indoor dining. We were, I think we're the only country in Europe not to be uh, uh, kind of con continuing with a, a program of indoor dining at the moment. Um, and so there is a kind of a legitimate economic argument to be made as to what are we doing here? Um, however, I suppose the you know once you get a sobering and pretty pessimistic uh, update from Neffet as they did this evening, that certainly might soften the cough of some of those objections. And, and okay. certainly, as I said earlier on, okay. you know if Neffet and mm -hmm. they clearly have made a very strong recommendation to pause indoor dining, I can't see the government going against that. What we might get though is a kind of uh, a reluctance to kind of leave it as an indefinite sort of period. I think the government will be keen to try and put sort of some sort of limit okay. on that, be it two weeks, three weeks or whatever. Um, but that will obviously be a decision for the full cabinet tomorrow. OK, Irish Examiner political editor Daniel McConnell, thank you for that. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to Royal College of Surgeons Ireland infectious diseases specialist Professor Sam McConkey, and I began by asking him if he's changed his views on COVID-19. Uh, not at all, Claire. Uh, it's, it's really pointing out to those large number of people who didn't go along with zero COVID, that if you don't do that, then you have to make really difficult choices of what level of mortality and morbidity from COVID do we want to accept as a society. This new Delta variant, we can see from England, about three in a thousand people are dying from it. About one to two percent of people are being hospitalised. So it's a matter of making the choices of, of how much mortality are we happy with. My own view is that to benchmark that realistically against something like car accidents, there between 300 and 500 people, approximately, or 200 and 500 die each year over the last 30 years. So I'm proposing that if we're going to ask what mortality is acceptable, similar to car accidents in a year might be a benchmark. Uh, this is a very difficult, very grown-up conversation to have because we're looking at people's lives and it's a political choice about how you manage that. And that, to me, is the inevitable consequences of not pursuing zero COVID. Uh, tonight, the Neffet advice that appears to be emerging is to delay the reopening of indoor hospitality. What would your suggestion be for government now? I think we've done very, very well in Ireland since the 29th of March with this gradual, stepwise, slow, monitored relaxation of restrictions. And I hope we continue that. Uh, it seems to me that 
if we're going to try and open up society and as people have just called it living with COVID, I prefer living without COVID. But if people are choosing to live with COVID, then we actually have to continue further relaxation than where we're at now. This life that we're at now is not really happy and acceptable to most of us. We need some more freedom for culture, for dancing, for music, for, you know, maybe not singing yet, but stringed instruments, maybe drums, cymbals, you know, loud music. Can we not have music events with people separated out in pods of six? Again, indoor dining with people separated out in pods of six, as we did last summer. Uh, there would be some increase in the Delta virus spread, but as I said, that will inevitably lead to lots of cases, but probably not very much mortality. I'm doing some of my own models and have done that all the way through. And it looks like between 200 and 500 deaths in this year, if we go for that at this point, while still pushing forward with the vaccination campaign at full speed. And if that's the choices that we're happy to make, to have the same sort of mortality in the rest of 2021 in Ireland as we have a car accident, then, then this is the choice that, that we're choosing. Uh, so it's not different from the zero COVID. It's just pointing out the need for sort of the counterfactual, if you like. What is the case if we don't try to eliminate it? The answer is we have to live with it and living with it will mean some mortality and morbidity. Mm. And those figures that you talked about, is that worst case scenario in your opinion? So talking about relative risks and risks we need to confront, what sort of risks would those be if we were to reopen on July 5th as planned? So the, um, the best modelers in Ireland with the most resources and the biggest computers and the best team looking at this are actually the modeling group from, from NEFID, uh, led by Philip Nolan. So I believe they have worked out, uh, I suspect, a, a more sophisticated, perhaps even better model than the ones I've done, looking at exactly this. If our rate of vaccination continues at, you know, 300,000 vaccines given every week, which is fantastic for the last few weeks, if that continues for the next couple of months, more and more people will be immune and, and not get uh, COVID because we've been using mostly the Pfizer vaccine. It's 89% effective against the Delta variant. The AstraZeneca was about 59%. So, so they, they will have a better model than me. Uh, so I, I will yield to their numbers if I, if I see them. They haven't actually transparently told us their uh, predictions for those yet. So what I'm describing there is not a best case scenario or a worst case scenario. It's, it's what I think is likely, that range of 200 to 500 deaths. Now, many folk may hear that and be really shocked and say, is that acceptable? Mm. And that to me is a public discussion that okay. needs to be had. Okay, Professor Sam McConkie, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, Claire. Well, here in studio now is Dublin Bay South Green Party by-election candidate, Councillor Claire Byrne, and People Before Profits, Bridget Purcell, and via Skype restaurant owner, Paul Trevo. Paul, I want to come to you first. Um, you've heard that serious consideration is being given to that NEFID advice, a 26-page document. Your reaction to it? Well, uh, good evening, Claire. How are we doing? I was just listening to Sam there, and... Uh, just with the predictions that these guys were coming out with, these are the same people that were predicting uh, an average and moderate opening come April would result in 3,000 cases come end of June. So you could be really forgiven that these guys, maybe they don't know what they're talking about. Maybe they're making it up as they go along because our industry, our heads are just absolutely melted at this stage because people are saying, look, it's only going to be another two weeks. We were told this, it's only going to be another four or five weeks at the start of June. And we know now at this stage that in 10 days' time, there's... There could be the tub of curry variant for all we know that's going to keep us closed for another three or four weeks. Actually, then it's nearly time for school. Might just stay closed for another two or three weeks, guys. It's nearly winter then. So, I mean, like at this stage, it's just beyond crazy. I mean, we've got to ask ourselves some serious questions here because 
nobody seems to be asking Neffet or the government this is, is first of all is that there's no surge or no spike in numbers since the 2nd of June uh, since hospitality or should I say since hotels have opened because it's important to know indoor dining is taking place all over the country which is fantastic in hotels which are absolutely packed but for some reason the CMO of this country and Neffet seem to think that COVID knows if you're staying the night so you're safe in a hotel but you can't go down to a restaurant and somebody at some stage really needs to call this out for utter nonsense, yeah. because that's exactly what it is. Okay. And somebody also needs to call out the government, who are clearly, clearly not in charge here. So if Neffet are telling the government what to do, I don't really know why we need a government at this stage, to be honest. Paul, you said that if uh, hospitality doesn't fully reopen in July, you're opening up regardless. Do you still plan on doing that on July 5th, even if Neffet make, uh, the government make this call off the back of Neffet advice to delay that reopening till further into July? What I'm going to be asking, Claire, is, is clearly nobody wants to be breaking the law. But what I'm going to ask is what the Minister for Justice asked the Gardaí to do two weeks ago, which is basically to turn a blind eye or use their discretion for anybody who was in breach of legislation by drinking outdoors. If they're saying it's two weeks, maybe the Gardaí could possibly turn a blind eye and use their discretion in a restaurant because it's going to be very hard to walk into the door and say, listen, you're doing something wrong here against the law in a restaurant. But 100 yards up the road, there's 200 people having dinner in a hotel. Uh, I mean, the reality of it is clear. I can't stress this enough. You have two politicians in, in, on the panel there with you tonight. The restaurant industry is absolutely destroyed. It's decimated. The final nail has been planted in the coffin of many businesses already. We simply have to open on Monday, mm -hmm. full stop. More particularly rural Ireland, because we've already lost one month of the main part of our season. Losing a day now is just, it's okay. absolutely suicidal for us. We cannot continue to stay closed. We must open. We've been doing this all our lives. We know how to do it safely. I don't care what anyone says. It doesn't matter if you're in my restaurant or if you're in a hotel up the road. We can both do it safely and people can enjoy their meal in a restaurant. It is absolutely insane at this stage what's going on. OK, Paul Trevo, restaurateur, thank you for joining us um, with your views tonight. And I want to come to the panel now. Um, Claire Byrne, you're a councillor with the Green Party. What decision do you think government have to make on this? Um, an exceptionally difficult one. Um, I think, as Paul has outlined, any decision to delay reopening for that sector in particular is going to be absolutely crushing for them. Um, but I don't think that decision will be taken lightly by any means, as no decisions around COVID have been. Um, I think we're in a difficult situation. We don't quite know about the impact of this new variant yet. Um, I think we've exercised a lot of caution, particularly since Too much January. caution, do you believe? I don't. I think we, we needed to take those extreme measures to get the, the numbers down. And on and this particular point around the reopening of, of indoor hospitality when we have increasing numbers vaccinated yes. and, and, and the hospitalisation figures around the Delta variant. Yeah, I think we need to... Um, I mean, I don't think the government would take any decision unless they were getting very stark advice. It seems like they are receiving very stark advice. Um, but I think what's important is that if there are any delays, that we continue to support the sector as much as possible. OK, uh, Bridget Purcell, People Before Profits view on this. What would you say? Open or don't? Well, uh, first I'd start by saying my heart breaks for re uh, restaurants and restaurant workers. I, I lost my job in the first lockdown because the restaurant I was working in closed. Um, I know the amount of work that goes into gearing up for reopening. It's not just a couple of days, it's weeks of work uh, in, in terms of like getting prepared. So my heart really does go out to them for the lack of clarity that the government is giving them in, in regards to reopening. Okay, if clarity comes tomorrow in the form of a decision to delay the reopening. 
Um, I I would support a delay in reopening, to be honest. Um, at the moment, we're looking at restaurant workers, for the most part, haven't received any vaccinations and they were asking them to put themselves at risk um, and exposure to COVID. We still have, the, the over 60s still don't have the their, their last dose. I think if, if we want to open up again and avoid another lockdown, to me, that what's most important is that we don't end up in another lockdown. And I believe we avoid that by reopening safely, even if it means slowly. Okay, well, on his way into government buildings tonight, the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, said the government would be considering Neffet's latest advice very seriously. I think what we can say at this stage is that the initial analysis by Neffet on the potential impact of the Delta variant in case of uh, the number of cases, hospitalizations, uh, has to be taken very seriously. Um, it gives us uh, an additional impetus to do everything we can to get everybody vaccinated as quickly as possible. Uh, we've all been watching the Delta variant in the UK for some time. Uh, I asked for a view from NIAC specifically around uh, Janssen and AstraZeneca for exactly this reason. We were coming close to having spare stock available. In my view, uh, if we got the expert advice to proceed, it was imperative that we would proceed. Uh, I'm very happy with the advice that NIAC has come up with so far, or come up with today. Uh, I've spoken to the HSE and we'll now be planning for rolling that out. It's very good news. It is subject to supply. Well, Virgin Media's political correspondent Gavin Riley joins me now from Government Buildings. Uh, Gavin, what's the sense there tonight of what sort of decision they're going to come to? Uh, the general sense, Claire, and I don't want to, to over-dramatise this, is generally one of gloom. The particular fact that Neffet hasn't suggested that there might be some specific time at which you can then go back to reopening indoor hospitality, that they're saying delay after July the 19th, but they're not, or delay after July the 5th, rather, but they're not saying how long for, is casting a very long shadow over some of the decisions that the government has to make this evening, particularly in light of that suggestion from Neffet that there ought to be some kind of domestic passport style system effectively where people would be able to prove their fully vaccinated status and only then avail of indoor services. It is worth bearing in mind that about two months ago at a Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meeting that was put to Micheál Martin, the idea of allowing those who are fully vaccinated to avail of indoor services at the time. It was thought about haircuts but it would also apply to, to hospitality and other services as well. And at the time Micheál Martin ruled that out. He said that not only would it be too difficult to manage and difficult to prove and then put an awful lot of liability on business operators but that it would also be a civil liberties issue. Now Neffet has put it back again front and centre and the government is also then wrestling with another question about how long you might delay the return of indoor dining for. I mentioned July the 19th a moment ago that is the date as Danny McConnell reminded you a few minutes ago that international travel is due back as well and don't forget part of the rationale behind delaying inter international travel back to July the 19th was because it would give the domestic tourism season a couple of weeks where nobody could leave the country so people like Paul Trevo or people in, in other hospitality trades would feel like they had the, the full pick of Irish tourists for a couple of weeks before international options came on the horizon. If the government is wedded to July the 19th for international travel, it means it's going to find itself in a situation now where it could be allowing people to leave the country, fly abroad and have a drink or a meal indoors in some other country, but not do it here. And again, the particular fact that Neffet is not giving a particular safe time is a big quandary. There might be the possibility maybe of the government deciding that they might borrow from the British approach, they might kick for touch, they might say not now. 
now and will reconsider in two weeks, see how many people aged between 60 and 70 they can catch up for and make up some arrears in vaccination. But it's all looking very, very difficult. And the very fact, as I say, that there isn't a specific timeline in mind from Neffet about when it might be okay to return to indoor dining for the unvaccinated means that the government finds itself in a very, very glum position tonight. And politically, it's very unpalatable, isn't it, for, um, you know, the, the fact that restaurants, they're due to open on July 5th, so are pubs, they're all set to go, they're getting stock in, they've all these big decisions and a big build-up to that July 5th date and that date was put out there by government. Yeah, and don't forget, Claire, as well, that the whole reason why these decisions are going to be made by Cabinet tomorrow and not at a meeting on Thursday or Friday, as Leo Varadkar confirmed earlier on, it was because the government wanted to give some sort of clarity to people in that trade. It wanted to tell them now, a week or so ahead of the possible reopening, when they're trying to think about getting stock in, when they're thinking about trying to arrange staff, they wanted to give them certainty to say, are you opening next Monday or not? And now, at least this evening, until there is some consensus and that meeting is still going on in government buildings, there is no clarity because it's not going to be July the 5th, it's not going to be July the 12th, there is a slim chance that it could be July the 19th, the same time as international travel returns, but there's also a fair chance that it could be three weeks or longer, that you could be looking to late July or maybe after the August bank holiday weekend. And at that point, because there is also a seasonal aspect to COVID, then there's the prospect of cases beginning to ramp up again as the weather begins to turn and then the outdoor dining doesn't become as much of an option. It's a really, really unfathomable position for the government to have to be in. And I suspect that it could be a very late finish as the coalition leaders and other senior figures here try to make some sense of how exactly you path a chart forward from this. Okay, Gavin, thank you for that update tonight. And uh, after the break, our Dublin Bay South by election debates continue here with the Green Party candidate councillor uh, Claire Byrne and People Before Profits, Bridget Purcell. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, the latest of our Dublin Bay South by-election debates. We're joined by Green Party candidate Claire Byrne and for the People Before Profit, Bridget Purcell. Uh, welcome, to, welcome to you both. Um, now, I, I, Claire, I want to come to you first. Um, and just on uh, the, the Irish Times poll that came in on, on how, you're, how you're doing respectively, um, you're on 11% polling. James Gagan there at the top and Ivana Batchik uh, coming in on 22%. What's your take on, and, and Sinn Féin in third position, Lynn Boylan there, what's your take on where your standing is and are you surprised by the leaders at the top? 
Um, I think it's important to say that the only poll that really matters is one on the 8th of July. You all say um, that. Yeah, we do, we do. But a week is a long time, a week is a long time in politics, but a week is a long time in campaign as well. So um, I suppose everybody will have their final push over the next week. Um, yeah, I mean, do the do the polls surprise me? Not really. Um, I mean, like I would think certainly from us on the doors, I would feel we're getting a very good response. Um, transfers are exceptionally important in any election, but particularly in a by-election. And um, if you look at the detail of the transfers, I'm uh, one of the highest candidates set to, to be uh, transferred okay. to quite generously. So yeah, that's... And on that point about transfers, it was reported there at the weekend that there's a, a, a sort of a, a transfer pact in place between the coalition parties. You're shaking your head. No. Not true? No. We don't have any trans. We don't have any transfer pact in place. We don't have any, any pacts in place with any party. We never have. Um, we're just asking people to from, vote green. Number and, one. And why, why it's been put out there? Because yeah, in the in the constituency, it does appear at least that there there might be a sense that if you give your number one to Fianna Gael, you might give something there to to, to the Greens, and, and likewise there might be votes passed on to Fianna Fáil. Yeah, no, we we certainly don't have any pacts in place with any party. Um, I think if you look at the combined polling tonight of the three government parties, it's quite reflective of the overall opinion of the government at the moment. So um, I don't think that's reflective of any any particular pact in place at all. Okay, uh, how is it running in, in this um, particular constituency, Bridget Purcell? You're people before profit and much has been made of the competition at the top, but that it's a battle between um, Sinn Féin and Fine Gael. Um, how do you feel your party sits in the midst of this? Well, um, in regards to how we're sitting, um, I think actually we're in quite a good position. Um, you know, in the general... Oh, sorry, just to clarify, yeah. the Irish Times poll indicate that, yeah. that you're at 2%. I'm aware, currently. I'm aware. And as uh, as Claire said, um, the real election, the real poll is on is on the day. <laughs> and it's also not... Does, as, it, does as, it worry you as you're, you're kind of taking, taking to the doorsteps and you're, you're trying to get those votes in that, that that's where your party is currently sitting? No, not really. I'm not hearing that on the doors either, uh, as, as Claire said. Um... People, people voted for change in the general election in 2020, and unfortunately, they didn't get it. Um, they voted to break the cycle of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and they didn't get that. Um, and I think it's important that people before profit are a party that is running in the by-election because we are the only party that gives you an ironclad guarantee that we will never go into Fine, uh, we will never go into coalition with Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Uh, you know, the Greens have, Labour has, and you see what happens. Um, essentially they sell out their voters and the promises they make do not come to fruition. Because look, if you if you lie with dogs, you get fleas um, and people want you to break the cycle of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And okay. if you want to do that, okay. voting for people before profit I'm, is your I'm best not, bet. I'm not sure how fair that, that comment is really just in, in the context that we're talking about um, this election come up, coming up and to be fair to everybody on that. Just, mm. I want to get on to, to policy and matters here and obviously, um, Green, the Green Party issues are big issues mm -hmm. in that particular constituency. And one of your big ambitions is to implement the Climate Action Plan and make transport greener. Do you think, though, so far what the Greens have achieved in government would undermine that ambition? As in, people would say, well, you haven't done much since you've gone into power. 
I completely disagree with that. If you look at our track record, uh, we're a year in government now and uh, we've been listing off significant achievements that we've made um, in terms of the very green aspects of the programme for government. Um, we're about to publish the most ambitious piece of climate change um, uh, legislation in the history of the state. It needs to be ambitious because we've had decades of inaction from previous governments um, and it'll mean that we can... Uh, you know, go from being laggards uh, on a global scale to, to being leaders when it comes to climate. Um, in terms of transport, as you referenced, we have in the last budget ensured that um, we have flipped our transport budget away from roads in favour of public transport. We're spending a million a day on active transport in terms of cycling and walking infrastructure. Um, and this is, this is the direction that we need to go in if we're going to reduce our climate emissions. Uh, what would people before profit, what would you say on that point um, about the Green Party ambition, their strategy, their transport plans there? I would, I personally, and people before profit believe that the, uh, the climate bill doesn't actually go far enough. Um, we have, we don't have that much time and we really need to start taking climate change seriously. Um, and that means also like looking at data centres, looking at free and public transport to get people out of their, uh, free, free public transport and plentiful public transport to get people out of their cars. We need to start talking about LNGs, liquid natural gas. We need to start talking about um, retrofitting um, housing, uh, like a mass retro, implementing a mass retrofitting uh, programme for our houses. Um, the bill doesn't, uh, the Greens bill doesn't bring that stuff up and I, I genuinely, I think it, it, we don't have the time to be messing around with this and we can't be doing things in half measures. Uh, half measures, I mean, the, the, the criticism is made that, and it's something people before Profit have said, that the Green Party are kind of contradictory in their approach here, that you're trying to kind of please the corporates. We have the data centres, they're up and running and they're absolutely fine, while at the same time pursuing, um, you know, a green climate strategy. Um, no, I, I would disagree with that. I mean, look, data centres will have to be dealt with. They will have to step up and look at uh, ways to keep going by using renewable energy like every other sector will have to do. And that's exactly what the Climate Bill sets out. Every single sector will have to play their part. It, it, uh, and, you know, I suppose just to say, no, we don't have time to wait. And that's why we went into government with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Uh, we ran on the platform of delivering immediate climate action, urgent climate action, and that's exactly what we're doing. Um, it has taken us a year. That's because we went through extensive pre-legislative scrutiny on this bill. That's how critical it is. We needed to get all parties behind it, all parties involved, including people before profit who did support the bill. Uh, we are delivering on retrofit programmes, uh, 300 million in the last budget. We also, um, the Recovery and Resilience Fund from Europe will also go towards significant retrofitting programme and provide allowing private house owners also to uh, access um, cheaper loans to be able to retrofit okay. their house while we can focus on retrofitting our public housing, which is critical in in terms of making people's homes more comfortable, okay. warmer, safer and cheaper to run. I just want to get on to the subject of housing because that's something I'm sure you're being asked an awful lot um, when you're going from door to door and looking for votes from people. Um, Bridget, what would you say are, are the main ambitions of, of your party were you to get, to get a seat um, in terms of providing affordable housing in yeah. that constituency? Yeah, so... Um Obviously, um, Dublin Bay South is quite a wealthy constituency, but it also has a lot of poverty in it. And almost half of the people in Dublin Bay South are renters. And from my perspective as a renter, I, I don't think that we have the protections that we need. We're looking at um, an 8% increase in rent now that the government has lifted the um, 
the 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 rent freeze and also with the the lifting of the eviction ban we're looking at an 8% increase on rents in Dublin Bay South that equates to about 140 euro tagged onto your rent on average the rent is already too high and the idea that people will be able to just start forking out this amount of cash is rather ridiculous. Um, what people before profit are calling for is um, an immediate ban of all vulture funds, public, uh, uh, using every scrap of public land that we have to build public and affordable housing and genuine affordable housing, not, uh, not housing that costs 450,000 euro. We want real rent controls to reduce, the amount, to reduce our rents and we want to establish a state-run uh, state construction company to, um, to, to keep to, to, to build at cost housing, but also keep our tradespeople here because a lot, an awful lot of them are emigrating and it adds to the cost. Okay, um, given the crisis we're in, a lot of people listening to that say, would say it makes sense that the rents are too high, that the mm -hmm. houses aren't affordable and yeah. that something needs to be done and what's being proposed just doesn't go far enough. Um, well, no, I think the Green Party are very, there's an all a government focus on housing at the moment and the Green Party are at the table bringing in um, solutions that will deliver affordable housing uh, and will deliver uh, deliver it quickly. Um, We've, uh, we're very focused on sustainable housing solutions as well. So moving towards a model that that will create communities as well. And we do this by uh, new definitions of affordability and the legislative framework to deliver at the cost rental model, which works all across Europe, which means we are building uh, state owned um, state owned houses and homes where they are rented back on a long term basis at the cost of the build, um, which means you can accommodate people of a range of different incomes uh, and provide actualness. Though. Yes, it will happen it will be it's it's part of the affordable housing bill and will be legislated for in the next in the coming weeks and in terms of renters we have a very strong commitment for the pro in the program for government um to legislate for indefinite duration and provide more security um and um, in terms of public housing on public land uh, the green party and government also recently secured agreement that um any public land developed by the land development agency in dublin cork will be 100 yeah. percent social affordable and I, I just want to ask you just on that housing. issue of, of public land and the glass bottle site yeah that was wasn't stopped by this government. It wasn't stopped by this government. No, I mean, no. Why, why would we stop it? We it's three and a half thousand homes. We have to yeah, progress they, with that. Are they affordable homes, though? Uh, they will be now. For we will. Who so need them in that area. So as a council, I mean, that's who, one of the criticisms. It is there, absolutely. Isn't it? And this is developer-led. Yeah. It is, yeah. Um, I mean, look, there, there wasn't. Uh, we could go back and talk about how NAM offered to sell yeah. the land uh, to Dublin City Council at, at a cheaper cost, so we could build ourselves. Unfortunately, that didn't happen with the previous government. Mm. So we are now in a situation where we are trying to no negotiate. However, what you know, as one of the councillors that was there when we were securing the 900 social and affordable homes, and I deal with the residents, the local residents, on regularly on this, and their critics, their main concern was that there was no legislative framework or definition of affordability in order to deliver okay. the five. 50 homes. We will need, have that by the end of this I government, need to this bring, term. Uh, Bridget in on, on that point. Um, you know, that at the end of the day, there are houses, they are being built and they, they will be provided. We're not sure yet on the cost of them, but they will be built and we do need more supply. Well, um, there's talk of them being built, but we don't see them actually being built. Um, I mean, again, with the, the Irish glass bottle side, um, I mean, you know, I live in Ringsend. It's kind of something that's important to me. Um, you know, 900 out of, 900 out of three, three and a half thousand homes is, is not good enough for, 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 we're looking down the barrel of, it, of an extreme housing crisis um, and a generation of people emigrating. That's what's going to happen. You know, um, it's, 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 it's imperative that we, that we 
attempt to solve this and we use a little more imagination. We, why, why, why is it only a fraction of those houses being public and affordable? Why not the whole site? Um, it, you know, it, we, we, and, and with the Land Development Agency, we're handing, over, we're handing over our public land over to the same developers who are, who are building luxury apartments that nobody lives in. I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a sustainable way to, to sort out a housing crisis. Okay, okay, thank you both for that. And the other candidates standing in the Dublin Bay South by-election are James Gagan for Fine Gael, Deirdre Conroy for Fianna Fáil, Labour's Ivana Bacic, Lynn Boylan of Sinn Féin, Sarah Durkin for the Social Democrats, Mairead Tobin for Aintu, Justin Barrett of the National Party, Renew as Jackie Gilborn and Independence Dolores Cahill, Peter Dooley, John Keir, uh, Colm O'Keefe and Mannix Flynn. And after the break, rising house prices right across the country. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, with asking prices for houses rising at a much faster rate outside Dublin, we're joined here in studio by Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University, Rory Hearn, and Chief Economist at Davie, Connell McQuilla. Um, I just want to come to you, Connell, uh, first on the particular um, reports. Uh, we're seeing that asking prices have jumped 13% in the second quarter of the year compared to the same period last year. What exactly is happening? Well, so just to start with, we need to remember that this time last year was the first lockdown prices actually fell slightly. So it's a slightly strange like for like comparison. But I think what's clearly happening is that we had a very tight market, uh, demand far stripping supply, and then you had COVID-19. So demand has remained strong. The people who lost their jobs are just in younger, uh, lower paid jobs, not natural home buyers. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's just how it turned out. But then the disruption from COVID has, mean, has meant that on the My Home website right now, there's only 12,700 properties listed for sale. So the amount of stock on the state agents' books is at a historic low. So we're seeing the average time to sale agreed at its lowest level in, in over 10 years. Um, signs, of course, that you know, we're seeing transactions settled above the asking price. So there's just very, very little available. And I think buyers are beginning to become ever more desperate and they're pushing prices up. And you know, one, of the, one of the striking statistics of a report today was that the average mortgage loan is up 5% in the year. Asking prices are up 13. And that gap is probably accounted for by people saving during the pandemic. Um, using those savings they built up to bid up prices. And this year alone, we're seeing substantial jumps between quarter one and quarter two. That's likely to continue for the rest of the year. We're going to see huge price inflation, aren't we? Uh, well, we'll see. I think the annual rate of inflation will probably fall back a little bit because it's that kind of false like-for-like comparison because you had that dip in prices last year and then you had a rebound in the summer last year. So I think you're looking at sort of 8% inflation, but we could be wrong. And I think the underlying story here is that People are really desperate. They're bidding up prices and that, that could lead to potentially a double-digit gain uh, this year in prices. Um, and then going into next year, hopefully things will slow down again. When you heard those figures today, Rory, what did you make of it, this 13% year-on-year jump and those quarterly jumps that are so high? It's, it's, it's not entirely surprising from what we're hearing on the ground and that, and that desperation, the sense that's out there that the people can't get a home. 
Yeah, it, it is really, it's desperate out there, you know, and I, I've talked about this, that this is a real, you know, I've called it a social catastrophe, what is going on, that you have people stuck renting in, you know, housing that is insecure, that's, um, they see, you know, they can't afford the rents, they're trying to, you know, it's cheaper to get a mortgage than it is to rent. Um, you have people living at home in box rooms, you know, people living in sheds. This is, you know, a real um, crisis. And the house price rise, I think people, they're, they're, it's talked about COVID and, you know, people relocating and we're seeing, you know, a higher price rise around the country. But I think there's also something else going on, which is essentially Dublin house prices have reached just completely out of reach of most people. And so we're seeing counties like Leash, for example, a 17% increase. We're back to that Celtic Tiger. People have been forced into the commuter belt. And of course, what that means in terms of, you know, quality of life for people, you know, commuting back into Dublin. And I think that if you look at it, that the danger is without serious intervention, prices are just going to rise further. Is there a sense, though, you're talking about people looking outside of Dublin, that things have changed uh, with COVID and with the pandemic and that maybe people are looking more at the remote working option and the need not to all gather in urban centres when they could be working from home? a number of days a week and, and they're happy to travel for, say, two days a week. Yeah, I think there's clearly an element of that. You know, people are, you know, trying to make different decisions. They're trying to move back down the country. They're trying to find uh, ways of getting out of, of, of city centres. But that is a certain, that adds a certain pressure. There's no doubt to that in terms of the regional house prices. But I think as well, we can't discount that, you know, investors in the, in 2010, for example, investors bought 10% of property. Now they're buying a quarter of property. So that's a significant add in pressure. And that's second homes as well. We're also seeing again, Dublin, you know, about why are we seeing regional prices? All apartments have been bought up by investment funds in Dublin. You know, people can't afford to buy apartments. That pushes them into buying houses. Okay, um, Rory would say that action is needed on this and the government criticism has always been, you know, don't interfere with the market. Uh, do you think, though, that some measures are needed for respite in this situation when we're seeing that kind of year-on-year -year jump that is hugely down to supply? Well, I think we need to realise there's no easy answers to this problem. We did a report last week and one of the really stark conclusions was, was that if you look at bill costs in Ireland in 2018, they're 40% higher for medium standard houses and medium standard apartments. So, I mean, that's a very intractable, difficult issue to get around. Um, I think the easiest wins maybe the role to say Irish water, the charges they put, is the, is the state or local authorities shouldering enough of the burden in terms of infrastructural de development that are, and that may not be doing enough and that's pushing up the cost to build. But I think you often get caught in a kind of a fake public sector, private sector debate. Um, there is no state home builder. We were going to rely on the private sector to build houses. And the really difficult issue, which we can't fix with a tax break or with an enlarged social housing budget, is just the capacity of the construction sector to build houses is much diminished from where it was during the Celtic Tiger period. With these high build costs, there's structural problems, and these are difficult things to solve. They're not easy, and they're certainly not politically popular either, necessarily. So people want a fast fix. Uh, we've had you know, we had 10 years of oversupply in the Celtic Tiger period, 10 years of undersupply. We're actually now building more houses per person population than the UK. So we share many of the same problems, but what's different in Ireland is that we have a much more volatile cycle. We've got strong population growth that makes, makes it more pernicious. Okay. Um, so I think the question is, are we going to pump up the market? Are we going to bring forward a cyclical supply response with the equity loan scheme with a large social housing budget? But these things will only be temporary. They'll be inflationary and they won't deal with this big 
underlying structural issue, which is high build costs. Or your take on that, uh, potentially a fast fix that won't really solve the problem in the long term. What would you say to that? Because this is something that, you know, you feel really strongly about. Mm. Uh, you, you've written um, books and papers on it and, and, and you believe that this money, and it's, it's actually not just you saying that, but th th that need to invest in that vital infrastructure and in housing um, needs to take place. But is it the only solution? Well, I think it's at the core of the solution. And I think Conal is, is underestimating the extent to which a historic state investment in building housing would have right now. And for example, if you look at, we're talking about a, you know, an undersupply, we're in a building in the region of 20,000 homes at the moment per year. We're talking about a, a, a gap in supply of 20 to 30,000 units per year. The state itself, if we look at it, could, the ESRI has recommended, and we, we spoke about this last time I was on, the ESRI has recommended the state could borrow 4 billion each year additionally. That would build 16,000 homes. If the state did that, along with directing NAMA, which has the land and finance, to build 15,000 homes, which it could do, um, and plus the 10,000 social houses we're building, the state could be building 40,000 housing units per year. That's a massive contribution to supply. And I know Connell will make the point that, well, we don't have the capacity, yeah. but we need to have the ambition that will then create that capacity. Well, I think ambition is all very well, but we have to have the capacity. People have to build the houses. And I think the issues in terms of the capacity of the construction sector are, first of all, the workers. Eastern Europeans clearly came to Ireland during the two years zero, zero, zeros. Those economies are doing pretty well. Do we need to look at the role of visas for non-EU migrants? Um, when we look at the construction sector, there's effectively three tiers. The first tier is kind of big builders with access to international capital, larger contractors, and then the smaller contractors where they built the majority of the houses in the 2000s. And that's where you're seeing the degradation of capacity. So are you, are you I think it's not realistic, I think this 40,000 unit build? It, I think it's actually not. Like the, the, I don't, this is, I, we're hearing Fine Gael making promises around this I think now as well. There are people who have easy solutions to difficult questions. One of them is to allow people to borrow as much as they can, and that would prove inflationary. And the other is to enlarge the social housing budget enormously. We could build the houses overnight. I really wish there was an easy switch we could flick, but the only way this will happen is effectively a slow burn uh, effort at these difficult well, you issues. Want to come in there? Yeah, I don't think we can accept a slow burn approach. The, you know, this is an emergency. This is a social crisis. Um, I think Connell is too much, um, his lens is coloured by the market and the approach. The idea is we need to get the market back again. Mm. The market has utterly failed. The private market has failed to deliver. The reliance on investment funds hasn't delivered. The state has to step in. We need an emergency response. And I, we can overcome issues. For example, we know tradespeople are emigrating. We know that if you created a state um, housing affordable homes company that would guarantee people jobs and income into the future, we would retain the trades and skills. We could build this capacity. And I think to me, it is about the, 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 the reluctance of government to really make some radical decisions that would change our housing system and mean we would have homes rather than just investment assets. Like arguably, you could say, Connell, that that view and that scepticism and that you know, lack of ambition or fear about what may happen or not being able to achieve this is what's held us back in terms of fixing the housing crisis and to incentivise builders and to do something about reducing building costs and to use state land could solve the problem. Okay, well, let's take one very specific issue, which is the fast-track planning process. There are currently 7,500 units that have been quashed in terms of the plans by High Court reviews. Uh, we have another 6,500 awaiting review. Uh, the Irish Association of Home Builders have said that 
up to 69,000 units going through the fast track planning process could be threatened by the legal uncertainty to do with the user views. So, I mean, I would love there to be structural change uh, and a fundamental change. And um, I'm not sure. What people, is the other, fix? Well, other people can judge whether the government has enough ambition or not. Um, perhaps Rory should, should run for government himself if he thinks that he should, uh, he can well, fix these problems. But, you know, they're not easy. They're very difficult to solve. And I've yet to hear myself a coherent explanation. I don't pretend to have the answer myself, but I've yet to hear myself a coherent explanation Rory, how you get over these difficult want, issues like judicial review. Rory, I want to let you back in there. Well, I think that the key is that you, as I said, set out there, the government could be providing 40,000, and I know the, the Taunishta mentioned the 40,000 figure, but he wasn't talking about the state building 40,000 homes. He was talking about relying on the private market again. We're in this situation, I'll come back to it, and the ESRI itself said this, the private market is not working. It's not delivering housing. Um, and so the state has to step in. And, yeah. you know, countries have done this in the past. We've done it in the past. Well, We've built council housing. So why can't the state do it again? And it is about um, using all the resources we have. I said NAM is sitting there. We have huge land banks. So why aren't we building? OK, well, we have to leave it there. That is it from us. My thanks to Rory Hearn and Colm McQuilla. Our programme is available as a podcast and our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. I'll be back here tomorrow night at the slightly later time of 10.05. From all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.